I'm Alex Mozed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Happy Friday. Hope everyone's had a great week. And today, first topic, Netflix. Netflix is down. Uh, Netflix is down a little more than 10% in the past week uh, after they released earnings, their Q2 2020 earnings. They actually had pretty good performance for Q2 itself. I mean, you know, if you look over the past six months, the stock has done very well, you know, up probably over about 25, 30% uh, since February or so before Corona, which makes sense. Everyone stay at home, shelter in place. People are going to watch movies. Uh, but now the reason why Netflix is down is because they're blaming Corona and they're saying the reason why the stock is down, despite having good Q2 performance, is they have basically cut in half their new subscriber growth estimates for uh, the subsequent quarter for Q3, which is a little peculiar given that nothing too material is going to change with the trends that supported it in Q2, shelter in place. Still think there's no sports. There might be some sports. NBA is supposed to start end of July. We'll see if that actually happens. NBA could actually do its own show just documenting the bubble. If you're not familiar with the bubble, it's basically uh, where now all of the NBA players and their families have self-quarantined to. Uh, so they can play a season. That could be its own reality TV show in and of itself. But anyway, um, you know, I've spoken a lot of, in the past about Netflix. It's not a platform company. It's a linear business. YouTube is kind of the platform equivalent. Actually, YouTube and Netflix are both doing roughly similar revenue numbers. But Netflix is paying for all of its own content, right? All that content sits on its balance sheet. We've talked a lot about this in the past on the show. You know, if I was to put apples to apples, which one would I prefer to own? It would absolutely be YouTube. YouTube is is the platform equivalent. So let's look at this. Let's look at these earnings a little bit more. I've kind of alluded to a lot of this comes down to how Netflix uh, depreciates its content. So when Netflix pays for a show, and if that show costs them $100 million, that $100 million expense doesn't hit their, their P&L in that same quarter or even in that same year. They depreciate that over a period of time. When you look at a lot of platform companies, when people would rag on Amazon for years saying, Amazon isn't profitable, Amazon isn't profitable, Jeff would say, well, we've got free cash flow. You don't know what you're talking about. So free cash flow is a very important concept to look at in the sense that could you be profitable if you wanted to be profitable, right? And the point is that Netflix has had negative cash flow for many, many years. Actually, just until this year, did they cross the threshold of actually having positive free cash flow? Um, so there's a couple things to understand in this. Netflix is spending, here's a nice little chart showing content amortization, right? So, so this green line here, is the annual content expense. Netflix logs this roughly as what they call a cost of revenue on their P&L versus cash flow, cash spend, right? So they're spending in 2019, 14 plus billion dollars on content, cash. 
And then they're logging about $9.2 billion of actual content expense on the PL. So, right, gray line is on the statement of cash flow, green line is on the PL on their income statement. And this, this ratio has actually been going in the wrong direction. Uh, the depreciation expense content amortization relative to cash, they, that, that ratio has been increasing. So they've been spending more cash than they've been logging expense relative to one another as the years have gone on, right? If you look back 2013, these were much closer numbers to one another. So what does that mean? Netflix is spending a bunch of money on content. And you could basically change the fact that they are profitable. So here's their earnings. So basically they said, hey, look, you know, we've been profitable quarter over quarter. Look, we've been profitable. You can see net income. We're profitable business. But if you look at how much money they're depreciating, if you were to change the time horizon, i.e. accelerate the time horizon that they depreciate their content against, the business is actually not profitable real fast. So let's look at some of those numbers. So here's their income statement. Great. Balance sheet is really what you want to look at for Netflix. So it's this um, non-current content assets number. So this line here, I click into this, probably going to mess up on my browser. But you can see here, as of Q2 2020, they got $25 billion in non-current content assets. This is an asset, apparently. So that means that even though, flipping back to income statement, they logged $3.6 billion in uh, basically content expenses. This is a little bit of like streaming, you know, like server expense also in here, but let's just run with these whole numbers. So $3.6 billion in just Q2, uh, 7.2 almost $7.25 billion for the first six months of 2020. So they're pacing at roughly a 14 to $14.5 billion depreciation expense for, uh, for 2020, roughly. So $9.2 billion was the 2019 expense. So about, um, I don't know, it, they don't break it out. So let's say that 75% of this cost of revenue line item is actually the content, give or take. Um, let's say that they are spending, they're amortizing, um, you know, about $11 billion in, um, total content expense in 2020, roughly. Okay. What this is saying is that as of June 30th, 2020, they have an additional $25 billion that they have already logged as an ex they have already committed to but instead of it coming up as an expense they're logging it as an asset what this means is netflix is spending way more than 10 or 11 billion dollars a year on content and actually if you look at their cash spend you can also it's evidenced by their cash spend where they spent over 14 billion dollars on cash in 2019. So that means that Netflix is spending 14 plus 15 billion dollars a year on content. They're only logging here 2019 9 billion dollars of it. So what am I getting? What are you getting at, Alex? Get to the point. Okay. Here's the point. If you look at the content timeline, Netflix says that over 
90% of the content is amortized over a four-year period of time. They don't really break out exactly how they amortize it. But so if Netflix instead says this content is valuable to us over a three-year period of time, you basically have to add 33% to these expense numbers, right? So instead of having uh, $3.6 billion cost of revenue, you know, this should be closer to $5 billion, right? And that means that if you're adding over a billion dollars in expense and they're only making $720 million in net income, this business on an income statement is losing a lot of money. It's a very different picture. So you got to ask yourself, stranger things, does that have four years of value? Should that be amortized over the course of four years? Uh, Or should it be three years? Should it be two years? Should it be five years? I think four years is very generous. Netflix likes to point at other content businesses like ESPN and their amortization schedule, which is, uh, I guess, a similar four-year timeline. But again, when you think about the scale of Netflix's content production, I would argue that they have much more volume and lower quality on the whole as compared to, say, Disney. Disney is not spending as much money on content, but arguably, Disney has a much higher quality. So if Disney's at four years, should Netflix be at three years? I think there's a fair argument in that. And if it is at three years, the business on the whole, not even close, is now not profitable. Now, does Wall Street really care about that? Hmm, No. The reason that Netflix's stock is down is because future growth and future subscriber growth is half of what Wall Street thought it was going to be next quarter. So this business is really being valued on growth. And the question here is, if growth stalls and starts to slow, not just for one quarter, but multiple quarters, and then the content doesn't hit home as well as it has been hitting home. And these other now, they have four or five legitimate content streaming competitors from a Disney to now AT&T with HBO Max, to now Comcast with Peacock, to now Amazon, Amazon Prime Video, now Apple. I don't know, probably one or two other companies I'm forgetting about. Some of the largest companies in the world, might you add. And if you say, okay, well, you know, maybe the content isn't as valuable as, as what it used to be, or maybe the content isn't really working as well as it used to be. I think when you look at their stock price, $216 billion valuation and 82 PE ratio. Look at Disney's stock. Disney has a 40 PE ratio. Yeah, I would say Netflix is overvalued. Absolutely. <laughs> and to me, it's honestly not even close. The multiples that this company gets and the lack of defensibility that they have on the supply side, do they deserve double the multiples of Disney? No, I absolutely don't think they do. I think Disney is much more conservative in their content spend approach, has much higher quality in their content spend. Disney hasn't scaled it anywhere near the degree of what Netflix has, but you are going to start to see the next few years look very different than the past few years for Netflix when they were the only game in town. And it looks like their strategy is to just keep plowing more money into content. Hence, the guy who is the head of all their content programming has now been promoted to be co-CEO with Reed Hastings, which if, if that isn't any signal to you about the future of the strategy of the company, I don't know what tells you, right? So 
Content is king. And their strategy is just to plow. So if I get 100 hit, 100 films, maybe one or two or hopefully five are big hits, right? If you look at the ratio of the Disney, Disney has a much higher kind of uh, volume to hit ratio. And um, I just think there's a lot of things, a lot of the things in the economics of, of this business, when you look at their, their free cash flow or really lack thereof. And the reason why I think the re- the recent performance actually looks better from a free cash flow standpoint, free cash flow, you got to look all the way bottom right. So they had 161 million in free cash flow Q1, 900 million this past quarter, um, free cash flow. It's very negative the prior years, negative 3.275 billion last year, negative 3 billion the year prior. All of these numbers keep getting bigger, right? In terms of negative free cash flow. Netflix has now positive free cash flow, but they said that next year they expect it to go negative again. And I think why you see a huge jump to $900 million in free cash flow in Q2 is because they had to pause a lot of their production. So they had to spend less cash. So they're not making as much content. How do we know that? This is the balance sheet again. Their non-current content assets for the first time ever did these numbers actually go down quarter to quarter? So you can see, right? Like uh, non-current content, uh, non-current content assets here, Q1 of 2019, 20.875, then 21.9, then 23.22, then 24.5. Q1 of this year, 25.25. Q2 of this year, 25.15. It went down for the first time ever, right? So that means they're producing less shows. Why are they producing less shows? Because of the virus. People can't create movies. You can't be on set. It's a pandemic. So that's really the only reason from a cash flow standpoint, from a balance sheet standpoint, that you see these ratios flip-flop. But if Netflix wasn't in pandemic mode, they would still be plowing a bunch of money into content. The difference is that you don't see the impact of them pausing their content strategy until much farther down the road, right? This content gap won't hit them for another few quarters, right? Because these things are all in the middle of production. Long-term trajectory of Netflix. uh, Do you buy the dip? No, I would not buy the dip. I think when you look at the other competitors like a Disney and how they're priced now, Disney is a much bigger business. They've got parks. They've got a bunch of other businesses, right? But when you just look at the competitive nature of the landscape today, you look at the business that Netflix has today, slowing growth, still having to dump so much money into content. No, it honestly doesn't look that pretty when I look a few years out. It's just kind of a a very top heavy business. And with one flick of a finger in terms of the, you know, arguably a, uh, a uh, you know, accounting metric of timeline to depreciate content completely changes the income statement and profile of the business as being profitable versus not profitable. One thing, right? You dial it down one year, maybe even six months, the business is no longer profitable. Really, and 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 and. And they have a whole schedule here of their shows and they do all this. They give you all this. It's actually a nice PDF on how they depreciate content. Where, where is this thing? You know, I don't know. What, what are the hits that they have besides like 
They list all their hits, Stranger Things. I don't know what Mindhunter is. Dave Chappelle, I know. In in Gobernable, I don't know what that is. I don't know what Bright is. I don't, Bird Box, I've heard of. I didn't watch it. Dark Sacred Games, Big Mouth, Godless, Nailed It, and Triple Frontier. I've I've heard of three of those. And I've watched some Stranger Things. I've watched Dave Chappelle. That's hilarious. And Bird Box, I didn't watch. But House of Cards, you can see Orange is the New Black. Narcos, they licensed these. They didn't create them. Those are licensed shows, branded as Netflix shows, but licensed. It's a very tough game, this, pro- this content production game. Anyway, you can make up your own opinion. We will see how they fare. The platform version of content, actually, interestingly enough, Netflix just listed TikTok as a competitor in their in their financial disclosures. A few episodes ago, I was talking about the future of TikTok. And what I said is, you got to spin it off. I think that's probably the only way that this thing is going to survive. It needs to be a separate entity from China China ByteDance. Um, And now, this article just came out. It looks like they might be exploring a TikTok sale. This, to me, is an inevitable future state. TikTok will be spun off. Now, the question is, will TikTok's product and engineering and product and development resources, who are all in China, basically be transitioned out? Now, this doesn't need to happen right away. I don't expect you to fire a thousand people or whatever the number is in China and say, okay, great, we sold TikTok. Now we're going to fire all of you. You're gone. No, I give you like maybe two years. And I think that's generous. Two years to rapidly transition your, I don't know, you know, 80 plus percent or maybe 100 percent. I don't know. Maybe maybe three years for 100 percent. You could have milestones, right? Like after a year this much, two years this much, three years, 100 percent. Three years, 100 percent. All product and engineering needs to be done outside of China. Otherwise, the U.S. bans TikTok. And, you know, you say, oh, well, the U.S. is a free country. No. Yes, we are a free country. But there's a thing called reciprocity. And if U.S. tech companies are not allowed to operate in China, then why should Chinese tech companies be able to operate in the United States? Riddle me that. When anyone can explain that one to me, let me know, because I haven't been able to figure it out. And this is just, yes, there's privacy concerns. That's kind of point B. There's privacy concerns and data concerns and all this data is going straight into the hands of the CCP. CCP is not a good government, by the way. You know, everyone wants, if everyone wants to say otherwise, I'll take that challenge any, any day of the week. When you look at what is going on here with India, which we just covered maybe a week or two ago, banning 59 apps, including TikTok in India. This is a part of a wholesale, I think, awakening of a double standard between how freely Chinese companies are able to operate elsewhere in, uh, in the globe, yet that same standard does not apply to how foreign companies operate in China. It's like Groundhog Day for the past 25 years. That was the whole idea in the 90s of like helping China open up 
We helped China join the WTO, the World Trade Organization. We helped China enter. Um, we, being the United States, helped China enter the global community. We helped them. We helped seed them with so much investment capital into China. And the hope was that they would open up. That they would open up. They would adopt. You know, I don't think anyone necessarily hoped them to adopt. Um, democracy or, 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 or these kinds of forms of government, um, but uh, at least would open up more, you know, free kind of capitalism type of uh, models. They have capitalism, but it's tightly, I don't know. No, I, don't, I wouldn't say they have capitalism. They have a butchered version of something that they would like to call capitalism, but it's not really capitalism. So when you look at this, kind of the aspirations of what we had hoped to happen a Microsoft and, you know, why did Google leave China? What was it? 10 years ago now. Um, and now uh, Sundar is kind of tiptoeing back into those very dangerous waters. Uh, why did Facebook never go into China? Right. Um, it's because you're not able to operate freely. We've documented this a myriad of times that the largest tech monopolies in China literally have entire departments entire Chinese CCP officials, like as a part of the executive team, they have entire offices inside the buildings of the tech Chinese tech monopolies. There is little to no discrepancy between kind of what is state government and what is, what does the CCP want to happen versus how does the tech monopoly operate? Very little and, and very blurred lines. So anyway, that's kind of point B on the whole thing. Just point A is reciprocity. It's not fair. So you get banned. And I think they're either going to get banned. I don't know if they'll get outright banned, but they will basically get forced to sell. Now, we've seen this precedent with Grindr. And I spoke about this maybe a couple episodes ago. We've seen this precedent with Grindr uh, where the U.S. basically nixed that acquisition and forced Grindr to not be owned by a Chinese uh, entity. Grindr is the LGBT uh, dating app. So there's actually plenty of precedent for this kind of stuff to happen. And I think it is. And honestly, rightly so. Now, this video recently leaked, leaked drone footage of the Uyghur Chinese Muslims, um, you know, basically going through, um, you know, reconditioning camps in, in the degree of something hundreds of thousands or not millions. New York Times has actually covered this maybe for the past year or so. This is a direct result of tech censorship and tech control by the CCP. Like the fact that this was leaked and this is spreading and no one has seen this and these efforts have been going on for years at the scale that they've been going on, you know, is just a great example to show that platform businesses do create so much value for society. They do. Even at monopoly stage, they do create so much value for society. But when corrupted by a totalitarian government entity, that value gets diluted and deteriorated rather quickly. Now, last China story. Um, Chinese retail stores, there's, this is an interesting dynamic that isn't necessarily as big in the US, but it is pretty big in China. We've talked about how a lot of these like celebrities will do live streaming to sell products. And brands and so on will like sponsor them and they'll do a live stream. And that basically it's like turning influencers into brand reps that sell stuff on social media platforms. Basically, 
this live streaming has been happening from these retail stores that are doing like all these shows and um, the shop owners have picked up on this. So it's not just influencers now, but it's shop, shop owners doing live stream, trying on products from the store. So it's, it's really interesting. I mean, that's what these stores are saying because there's no foot traffic. They have to live stream all the product and try on the product. But this is a really interesting way. You say, oh, well, I have a store. I have all this inventory of clothing. Let me just go do like a fashion model show, try on a bunch of stuff, and then engage my uh, you know, shoppers and customers in dialogue and, and these kinds of things. Um, I think it's a really interesting model. We haven't seen live streaming when it comes to being commercialized for shopping pick on that heavily in the US. We haven't even really seen live streaming, I think, take on as heavily um, across a bunch of different spectrums of of live stream content as heavily as China has. And so, you know, this is the thing I give China props for all the time. Their tech community and their tech consumer behaviors are in many areas uh, one or multiple years ahead of where the US is. They have a very innovative culture. They have very innovative tech companies. There are a lot of things that they do and frankly out innovate what the US tech companies are doing. You know, when I talk about the issues with China, and I'm speaking to the CCP and I'm speaking to this totalitarian, uh, all controlling government um, and what comes with that baggage versus when you actually look at the tech community and the startups there, there is so much opportunity, innovation, hunger, drive, um, all of these really great attributes, which is why you can see like the US VCs that go into China speak so fondly of it. The problem is when those tech businesses get so big and then they get controlled uh, by the big bad CCP, that's when all these kind of altruistic value props of platforms and all this stuff uh, kind of, you know, fall down on themselves unfortunately. So yeah, you just got to block that out. What else are you going to do? Okay. I'm going to end on a high note. A great example of an incumbent business, an incumbent media business, Scripps. What does Scripps do? Public company? Hmm. Sub-billion dollar market cap. They have a bunch of different media brands, national brands. They have uh, local brands. Very much so what you could say is a, um, you know, see all these local kind of TV stations. They bought a company called uh, Midroll. That company was acquired by Scripps in 2015 for about $55 million. And then in 2016, Midroll bought Stitcher for $4.5 million. So you're in it for 60 million bucks. This is now the Stitcher Entity, which is a podcasting platform. Spoken a lot on the show about the buzz and the drive with Spotify and many others jumping on the podcasting bandwagon, securing Joe Rogan and others for big podcasting uh, contracts. It's a huge interest to consumers to spend their time listening and, and watching video podcasts. Very fragmented, which is good for content platform, right? You want that fragmented supply as opposed to music. Uh, not fragmented. So Sirius just acquired Stitcher um, for $325 million. So 
if you assume Stitcher was not making money, we don't really know. Let's just say Scripps is in to Stitcher for $40 million in OPEX over the past four or five years, right? They spent roughly $60 million buying these two businesses and rolling them up. You got $40 million of losses. I think that's extremely generous conservative estimate. It's probably way under that Um, because they could sell ads and other things on it, right? So it's not just totally burning cash. But even if it's $100 million, you're now over 3Xing your money over the course of, say, a four or five year period of time. I'd say it's a pretty good ROI, right? Great example of a traditional linear media business embracing a platform model, getting into podcasting content where where Scripps makes their own content, right? Like they own local news stations. They're in the business of making content. And the leadership there was able to say, yeah, let's let other people create content for us. Hmm. Kind of seems like a simple idea, but trust me, it's not. When you've been running and building a business for as long as Scripps has, see, when was this thing? Founded in 1878, mind you, when this is what your business has been doing, you create media. And then you say, yeah, we're going to put our brand, we're going to put our reputation, we're going we're gonna to sell ads to our advertising customers against content that we don't control. That's a very different conceptually business. That's a very big departure for the executives uh, at Scripps to embrace. And I give them credit for having done it and it paid off. It's a great example. Great example of a linear business embracing platforms. They didn't end up holding on to the business, but it certainly was a great investment. It's going to give them a lot more cash in the bank to invest in other, I'm sure, digital initiatives and new business initiatives that they have on the docket. And I give them a lot of credit for it. It's really a great example. And um, what's definitely not easy to do for them to get to this stage. So job well done on that front. Not a multi-billion dollar exit, but still something to be very proud of. Made a lot of money for, for their shareholders and, and job well done. Um, so we're going to end on that note. Everyone have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us on Winner Take All. Now we'll talk to you next week.